Well, hello everyone. I'm Asha Nayaswamy, and it's my great joy to be with Kishama today. And we're going to be continuing conversations with Asha, Millennials Speak. There were many reasons why we started this, not the least of which is there's a whole very extraordinary dynamic uh, team of Ananda leaders uh, who are of a generation or two behind those of us who founded Ananda, but have in their consciousness and in their nature, they have the same dedication and the same zeal of uh, true devotees born to serve Master's work. When I was their age, their stage of life in the spiritual path, there was no generation in front of us. We were the founding generation, and so we were the face of Ananda. What's happened in the last 50 years is that the face of Ananda has sort of stayed on a few of us, not, I mean, it's not a few, on a large crowd of us who sort of came up together. And I thought it would be really nice to um, sort of help uh, bridge the gap by get, helping all of you to get to know some of these people as I know them. They're not unknown to you by any means. But all of this opportunity to broadcast has opened up possibilities and conversations with millennials and letting millennials talk about what the spiritual path looks like to them. Not only will introduce them to those of you who are longtime Ananda people, but I feel that there are many in uh, many of their own people, so to speak, their tribe is the way I think about it, who uh, perhaps can discover something about the spiritual path that speaks to their particular life experience through the experience of these souls. So with no further introduction, Kashama, tell us a little bit about how you started out in life, what your early life was like, how you, just give me a short version and I'll interrupt you periodically with more questions. Okay, I can do that. Mm -hmm. um, my family actually um, raised me at Ananda Village. My grandparents were disciples of Paramahansa Yogananda also and gave the autobiography of a yogi to my parents when I was very small. Um, by the time I was, I think two, we had moved to the meditation retreat uh -huh. and I spent um, a majority of my childhood living uh, at various places on the Ananda Village property, the meditation retreat property, and then some of our World Brotherhood colonies around the world. Palo Alto was one of them um, several times, and Ananda Sisi, and, um, and other places like that. When you were a child, were you conscious of the fact that the environment you were living in was unusual? Did you have any point of contrast, cousins or anything like that that gave you a point of contrast? Maybe little touch points. Um, yeah, certainly visiting other family members' homes and things. So it was clear that there was some level of difference. But when you're a child and your reality is mostly what you've known and grown up with, there's a sort of normalcy to it. Um, so I don't think I was as aware um, of how dramatically different my childhood was from other people's. When, when did you begin to figure that out? <laughs> um, when I was 11, um, I went, my family, um, one side of my family moved 
to Ananda Sisi, and there was no living wisdom school in Europe at that time. And so I was enrolled in Italian public school. You went to, and, you went to Italian public school. Okay. Oh, I did. Yeah, just at, just down the street from um, the Basilica of St. Clair in Assisi. Uh-huh. Wow. And I rode the school bus every day, and um, I went to... I went to school with, um, there were beautiful teachers. So it was a wonderful experience, but it was very different from a living wisdom school experience. I had teachers that were still smoking in the classroom and corporal punishment was a little bit of a a reality at that point. And um, I was learning a new language and learning to navigate new social norms. But I I started to notice that there was a big difference in how um, children related to the world and how teachers interacted with children. And I think that was probably my first real awareness that what I had been receiving was um, precious. Well, then how did children relate differently? How did teachers relate differently? Um, It was more formal. um, And I think in the sense of um, not in terms of respect, but in terms of distance. Mm -hmm. Um, So there, there's a lot of, deep respect that's cultivated in the um, child-teacher relationship. And there's a level of um, graciousness that comes from that when there's real respect. And then there's also sort of an artificial line um, of respect that is based on um, fear and or a um, an us and them kind of dynamic. And so that, that was a little bit more present. Um, I also was aware that um, consequences weren't addressed or um, opportunities for learning weren't addressed in the same ways. And so when children um, were faced with an opportunity to learn a really important life lesson, there was a lack of um, awareness on the side of the teachers that I interacted with in terms of using it as a teaching moment as opposed to um, just bringing in punishment-based um, discipline. So. Well, skipping to the present, I'm, I, I know, <laughs> I mean, you've been a teacher now for a dozen years. Is mm-hmm. that that long in the living wisdom school system? So even at the yeah. age of 11, you were evaluating a teacher's methods of teaching. Is that what you're telling? I, I hadn't thought about it like that, but I suppose so. Yeah, on some level. What you just said there almost describes education for life. Instead of using opportunities to teach important lessons, punishment was offered instead. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that was unfair when you were a child or did you just sort of observe it? Um, I found it bewildering, I think, which is probably where the awareness started to grow that, that there was something else that was happening in mm-hmm. my, my prior um, education mm-hmm. and, um, and that it, it just didn't quite make sense um, the way that, you know, I, it was my first experience with dealing with unkind um, people that that weren't being supported in learning how to be more gracious. And I was left a little bit adrift. Um, But it was also a precious time and it was an incredible learning and expanding my own awareness um, of how the world works and how other people relate to it. Well, then what comes to my mind is a question that people frequently ask about Ananda, about our educational system and about children raised in the community. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that your upbringing at Ananda, although it was kinder, since you use that word, did it leave you more or less prepared to deal with what you might call the real world, as, as people call it? Were you stronger um, or weaker because of it? What do you think? I think personally, I was a lot stronger. Okay. Um, I, 
the the saying it takes a village to raise a child uh-huh. um, I think was was very very true in my upbringing and it was you know on very very practical levels having mentors that taught me how to be um, you know a meaningful employee and how to work with integrity um, teachers and parents and friends who immersed us in the natural world and helped us to cultivate a love for um, our earth um, an exposure to, but not um, a pressure towards um, centering practices and meditation and things. So I, I think for me, I was able at different stages in my life to employ different tools that I had been given or not employ them if I chose not to, <laughs> but, I, but I had them. And, yeah. um, and eventually when I got hit over the head enough times I decided to start using them more so I think it really did prepare me in a lot of ways so did so uh, you didn't finish high school with Ananda by high school you were off into public school again yeah I um I was with living wisdom most of the years until through my seventh grade year Mm -hmm. and then I moved with my mom to um, the Carmel Monterey area for eighth grade I spent eighth grade there and then by the time we moved back to um Ananda, it was time for high school, and I went to the local public high school there. So did you go to the public high school as a devotee of Paramahansa Yogananda following the ways of Ananda, or did you just throw yourself into high school? I was just a kid. (laughs) 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 And I think it was... um, I think it was a vital experience. I I don't know that I would have had the wherewithal or the perspective to come back to this path and to our practices if I hadn't really immersed myself in experimenting with a lot of other possibilities. It was a, it was a, um, I can't say it was the most inspired or elevated period of my life, but I think high school was a really, really valuable experience also in learning. You know, from the perspective, my perspective where I knew, have known your parents, you you actually, I met your parents when you were two, so you were already in the picture, (laughs) but, uh, having known a lot of parents before there were children and then they had their children and all of us who were, you know, the founding members of Ananda, getting married, having families, we all were immensely curious as to, as to how you all would turn out. You were kind of like a, a Petri dish that we were looking at all the time. <laughs> There's a statement in the Bhagavad Gita, it's actually a chapter 6, verse 42. I know which one it is, 642. It says, if you strive for spiritual attainment and don't make it and have to be reborn you'll get born into a family of yogis if you have very good karma but such births are very hard to come by so we would watch all of you and wonder you know and and, but we had to say to each other and this was the truth we really didn't know what it would look like for a child to be born into a family of yogis and then grow up would they be just a little a pious little saint Clair, you know from start to finish or would they be a St. Augustine who prayed intensely, make me a saint, but not yet? <laughs> I love that. So when you went out larking about to see what the world had to offer, I mean, what was your experience and why did you end up going back essentially to what you were born into? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll just be really honest. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Until I didn't anymore. Um, Okay. There there was a, there was a real shifting point. Let's hold that for a second. 
Okay. I had a lot of fun until I didn't. That was St. Augustine. Make me a saint, but not yet. <laughs> okay, so we had yeah. a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun, and then the fun started to dry up. Uh-huh. And um, I think what I was left with was, um, on the surface, a world and a life that I thought should be really fulfilling and looked like it was. Um you know, I, I was out of school. I had a good job. I was um, surrounded by friends. I had a wonderful relationship. I mean, all the little, the little pieces were in place. And I started to increasingly feel like there was something missing. And the, the only way that I can describe it is almost like just a, a growing emptiness mm-hmm. that I couldn't satisfy. I couldn't fill it back up. And my beautiful father kept reminding me of certain practices that I could do and I would nod and smile and say thanks dad (laughs) and uh (laughs) and then um I don't know little little shifts started to happen I I feel like master uh, enough um emptiness came about that I started to be receptive and and master just sort of took charge at that point and then within um six or nine months, uh, my whole life, uh, shifted just like that. that. Yeah. And I believe you came to live here in Palo Alto at that time. Is that when you moved here? Yeah. At the end of that period, I, um, yeah, job was different. Home was different. Um, living back in community, learning to meditate again. Um, I'd taken discipleship. I'd been on pilgrimage to India. Um, just, just a radical, turnaround. How old were you at that point? 24. 24. That's the time when it happens astrologically. A tremendous, a great many people come to Ananda at the age of 24. Not all of us. And a lot of us who are founding members of Ananda are all born within the year of each other. There's a crowd <laughs> of us. I keep, we haven't really had a mass exodus from the planet, but I think we'll, a lot of us incarnated at the same time. And I wonder if we're all going to just kind of start checking off at the same time. But I don't know if you saw my face, but um, I will yeah, try not to have a response to that. Well, I'll just be neutral about it. You can have a response to that. <laughs> so when I came back into Ananda, let me think how to say it. I mean, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prompt you because you, you mentioned to me once that you did not go back to the, to the community where you grew up, that you came to a different community. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you sort of talk about making Ananda your own as opposed to being born into it? Sure. Um, I So during that time period, um, I I really just started trying to imagine where where I could go and where I could live. And I knew a change was needed, but I hadn't zeroed in on what it was. And I noticed pretty quickly that all of the places that I was c- considering were places that had Ananda communities. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I had even visited Palo Alto um, and snuck in for Sunday service and then snuck out and didn't talk to anybody. And um, I don't think I'd been here in probably, I don't know, 20 years um, yeah. or I don't know, 15 years at that point. And so um, the, the invitation, actually, this is where I feel like I was more guided than anything. I wasn't actively seeking uh, a role in the schools or employment, but I, a lot of things in my life started guiding me towards that. And I got a call uh, from the school, uh, unsolicited by me, inviting me to come down and interview for an internship. Mm-hmm. And um, it, 
it just, you know, it was one of those decisions that on the surface didn't make any sense at all. And it was something that I just knew that I had to do. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I moved to Palo Alto, but I think it was really, really important that I start fresh in a space that, um, where I wasn't completely defined by my childhood, you know, who I was as a child or who I am in relationship to my family, because Mm -hmm. I have um, both grandparents and parents who have been uh, really a big part of Ananda for a very long time. And I don't know if I would have been able to find my personal connection, both with um, Master and the Path or with the community if I was solely defined by who I'd been or who I am in relationship to my, my family. I can certainly understand that. I, I know that, so you started when you were 24 in, as a teacher in the Living Wisdom mm-hmm. School, and you still are a teacher. Why don't you tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about what, what you've done and what that means to you to be part of Living Wisdom Education? Big question. I know it's a big uh, question. <laughs> Um, Give me your answer in segments and I'll ask you questions in between. (laughs) I think for me, uh, the school has become very clearly a a central part of my my discipleship and my journey. I think teaching in many ways is one of the fastest paths to sainthood. (laughs) It's it's intense and it stretches um, the teacher in ways that you don't expect to be stretched and it and creates I, I want you to I want you to tell me how does it stretch the teacher in ways you don't expect to be dressed I know you started teaching second graders right second grade first grade little tiny I've, yeah I, I spent about 10 years teaching first and second grade how did um, that, how did that stretch you in ways that you can't imagine and how does that relate to discipleship you, you just made those um, assumptions, but I I haven't had experience okay, tell me what your experience is I very, very quickly found that um, without a morning sadhana practice, um, my school days did not go uh, as well as they could. Um, there's, a, there's a centering and a depth of um, intuitive flow that comes in when there's a strong um, meditation practice so that that became the motivation for me at the start to make sure that my meditation practice was very steady and strong Mm -hmm. um i found that i had to you know they say you you know you've mastered something if you can teach it to someone else Uh and so i mean even with small things um the things that you teach to first and second graders the ability to get clear uh, in my thinking and creative and flexible in my thinking and how to approach different subjects so that you could reach um, a whole variety of different students who have different um, ways of understanding the world and relating to the world. It was huge. Um, being able to support and relate to the needs of the parents, being able to uh, help understand the underlying motivations of people's actions rather than just the action itself and be able to help make incremental change in those ways. All of those were wonderful learnings in terms of how to support students, but then also for myself and for my yeah. uh, inner growth. Very good. Now, um, what is the essence of living wisdom education as opposed, for example, to the education you had in Italy when you were 11? Mm-hmm. I mean, which is more like the education most people have. Um, 
we're looking, well, one, we're looking at our children and our students as souls on their journey home, on their journey to uh, self-realization. And so it's not, it, it is about the math facts and the ability to read and stuff, but those are vehicles to developing um, soul qualities mm -hmm. in the children. And we're, we're looking at them as whole beings and really trying to use the moments to help them grow in their expanding maturity and ability to relate to their own inner experiences and then the world around them um, with greater and greater awareness. Hmm. So we, Swami says that the goal of education is um, for an in individual to be able to relate to the realities of others, um, full expanded awareness and acceptance and understanding. And I can see, I mean, as a teacher, you, don't, you can't choose your children. I mean, I, you know, the, the natural inclination to favor some and not favor others or find some easy and some difficult, that would be the opposite of what you're trying to get the children to understand, isn't it? Yeah. And it's a beautiful practice to learn to love them completely and then also let them go. You know, every year there's this process of just feeding them and loving and supporting and helping them become the best that they can be. And then at the end of the year or two years or three years that you have them, just opening the cage and setting them free to uh, journey on. Well, I know you yourself have gone from first and second graders to a high school level now. So mm -hmm. tell us what you're doing now. Uh, I started this fall. Um, I stepped in when Kabir McDowell, who's now in India, transitioned to, to help the work there. I transitioned over, left second grade, and stepped into directorship of our high school program. So I've gone from seven-year-olds to 17-year-olds. Um, how's that working for you, Kashama? <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. It's absolutely wonderful. We have, um, our school is, is small and growing and absolutely vibrant and beautiful. We have incredible students. We have a remarkably wonderful teaching staff, and um, it's it's a joy to be working on a project that has so much potential for expansion and creative growth. So is it fundamentally different to be teaching teenagers instead of seven-year-olds? I mean, not some people, some people think that seven-year-olds are cute and not everyone thinks that 17-year-olds are cute. You know, I mean, there's like, there's the adorable factor for little children mm. that isn't necessarily there for teenagers. I'm not speaking for myself, but I'm speaking for the perception. How is it, how do you approach it? Do you approach it differently or is it just fundamentally the same? I think at the heart of it, more of it is the same than not. Um, certainly teens are going through a, a dramatically different part of um, their life and their development and finding ways to meet their needs and help them to really expand and grow is um, in some ways it's new um, for me, but also underlying it, there are some principles that just are enduring. We all want to be seen. We all want to be understood. We all want to be loved. We all want to have humor and friendship and connection and, um, and understanding. So I, I've, uh, I was wondering as I made this transition over how easily I would move from seven to 17. You know, I, we have 14 to 18 year olds in the yeah. program. Uh -huh. But um, what I found is that they are absolutely wonderful and just as lovable and vibrant and fantastic as little ones. Is there, is there though a fundamental difference in the way you approach teenagers as, a, as opposed to the way you approach seven-year-olds? 
Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, if we look at how the soul develops and the the body develops, um, Swami talks about, and and many educational educators have have seen this over the years. There's a, a progressive development that happens um, when you're very very small. The whole way that you relate to the world is through your physical body. You know, little people touch, taste. You know, they want to run, they want to jump, they learn best through their bodies. And at some point, usually, you know, I w- I've taught first and second grade, so I was always watching this transition happen. Um, six, seven, eight-year-olds, they start to awaken to a more refined ability to relate to their feeling nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a depth of um, perspective. Friendships become extremely important. Um, heroes and teaching um, ethics and morals and things through through story becomes a really really vibrant way for them to learn and then as you go through the so we're looking at sort of six year development periods and there's you know flow and flexibility with each of these but after the body has been the primary focus and then the the expansion into feeling we move into a time of life when children really need to experiment with their willpower and learn how they can impact and influence the world around them and themselves. And so, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, we see this as a time period that's very, very toxic. Um, And we, as a society, are looking for ways of helping support our teenagers and our young people in making healthy choices. But um, really at the heart of all of it, they're experimenting with their own capacity to influence their reality and so the more we can find ways to give them outlets to challenge their will to give them ways to to positively impact the world around them to empower them to to find those avenues um, the more healthful they become well it would seem to me that the entire essence of self-realization is developing your willpower to to influence your reality so are, are they getting, I don't know how to say, a religious education, a yoga education? How would you, how would you characterize it? Um, I think what, what we hold is certainly a spirit-centered education. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're working with young people, I think this is one area where there are big differences. When you're working with young people, um, small children, there are certain um, approaches that activate and open the heart more easily. Mm -hmm. And with teenagers, especially teenagers that are coming from all sorts of different backgrounds, um, maybe religious or non-religious households, a society that is very, very highly skeptical of spirituality, religion, Mm -hmm. things like that. I think there's a level of cynicism that has built up in a lot of our our Mm -hmm. children and young people. And so finding ways where they, we may, we may not be talking about God, we may not be talking about um, religion in terms of uh, practice, but the more they get tangible experiences of expansive qualities um, and, and an awareness of their innate connectedness with each other, with the world, with nature, I think what we're trying to do is aliven and wake up um, an inner experience that leaves them with a seed of, of something to seek out either immediately if they're ready for it or later on when they 
are looking for something. I mentioned at the beginning how I, my education and childhood very much informed my later life in terms of knowing that there were tools that I could come back to. Right. And even if I wasn't ready to implement them when they were offered um, or as fully when they were offered, they were still there and they were things that I could come back to. So we, we do, we talk about uh, energy and magnetism. We talk about centering practices. We do a lot of different types of meditation um, and depending on the receptivity of the group or the individual, um, we try to give them a real life experience of what they may want to seek out more in future. I wouldn't call what we're doing a religious education, but I do think it's very much a spirit-centered one. Right, exactly right. It's sort of, I mean, it's what you yourself said when I said, how was your life? when you went away from your upbringing and you said it was a great deal of fun. <laughs> it was. <laughs> and also, but, but then it stopped being fun, but then you knew that there was an alternative. I mean, I think that just about sets it up and what you describe with working with the high schools is just that. Let's, let's let them have experiences and then those experiences will be their guide. I mean, that's the whole, that actually is the yogic path. The yogic path is, it's based on my experience. So if you give people experiences, because nobody does anything that they don't really believe in from their own lives, they will, or at least they won't do it very long. Yeah. Well, Kashama, I know we could talk a whole lot longer. We've barely touched the surface. And so we'll see you again before too long. And thank you very much for sharing with us. We're very grateful. Thank you, Asha. This was lovely.